I'm Jonathan Mosen. This is Mosen at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. What do you hope Apple will reveal at WWDC? It's been a struggle, but Google finally gives us an answer on Braille head support. And author of the popular technology book, After Steve, Trip Mickle, joins me for an interview. Mosen at Large Podcast. It is that time of year again as we prepare for Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference, known as WWDC. It kicks off U.S. time on the 6th of June at 10 a.m. Pacific time. That's 1 p.m. Eastern. When the keynote concludes, which will tell us about what is coming up in Apple's new operating system releases, we will be recording a special episode of Mosin at Large. It will be episode 182, in which we will have a panel taking a look at all that was announced providing a bit of opinion and analysis from a blindness perspective. And as is our custom at this time of year, we're asking you, what are you hoping for in terms of WWDC? What would you like Apple to do? We know what's coming accessibility-wise, but there will probably be some other tweaks that they didn't mention and plenty of general things. One thing we do appear to be able to expect pretty regularly with iOS releases is changes with notifications. Apple tweaks these a lot, and that usually means that notifications get pretty rocky for voiceover users in the early part of the beta cycle, and if we're lucky, it gets fixed in time for the gold release of the operating system before it goes out to the sensible people who don't beta test (laughs) and make sure that their device is as functional as it possibly can be. I suppose the reason why notifications get so much attention from Apple is that they are both a powerful area and a potential cause of concern. I must confess to struggling with this a lot. I'm a news junkie. I don't like missing out. I like the fact that this technology has given us so much access to breaking news. So I have a lot of breaking news apps on my phone. They are pushing me things. And I do feel quite strongly that what's happened over time is that the developers of these news apps have started abusing the privilege of having push notifications. When I started using an iPhone, you would really only get push notifications from news apps if there was true breaking news, something really significant that was happening in the moment that you might like to know about. And that's the kind of thing I want. But increasingly from news apps, you just get clickbait, essentially. It's not breaking news anymore. And a lot of the apps don't provide that degree of granularity where you can only elect to receive breaking news or news about the topics that interest you. Some do, but most don't. And there's increasing evidence that this is actually quite harmful. Humans aren't designed to jump from task to task, and we're certainly not designed to multitask. There is an abundance of research out there that demonstrates that this is a major problem. And this is one of the reasons why Apple spent so much time on focus in iOS 15, and I suspect we will see some more in iOS 16. And I welcome that. I think focus is one of the coolest features to be added to iOS in a long time. I use it a lot. I do find sometimes it's not as reliable as I would like. For example, when I run the Kindle or Books app, I have a focus setup that is supposed to silence most notifications. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, and I'm not really sure why that is. But it does look like we're going to see more changes in notifications in iOS 16. What would you like to see? There is still time if you want to get your opinions 
then in time for the next episode, which we will publish just before WWDC, by all means. Jonathan at MushroomFM.com is my email address. Attach an audio clip or just write something down. And you can also call our listener line on 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736. Here's Rick Roderick. He says, I love my iPhone, but like anything else, it could be improved. Here are some of my thoughts. First of all, fix the bugs in Braille with a lowercase b. I do most of my entry with a Braille display. Often, when I am entering a password, it is simply not accepted. Okay, that's interesting because we've got another listener complaining about this very thing. Rick continues, Scott Davitt confirms that it is an Apple bug. In each release, I look for a fix, but it still hasn't happened. Second, says Rick, get a bit of male voice for Siri. Most are quite clear, but I really haven't found one that I like. One idea would be to use a celebrity voice, such as Anderson Cooper or James Earl Jones. It should be a very resonant voice. Make Siri able to do follow-ups. I would like to be able to do the complete action of ordering an Uber or Lyft completely hands-free. Here is the way I envision it. Me. Summon Lyft. Siri, I have your current address at 1915 Rockledge Avenue. Is this correct? Me. Yes. Siri, where would you like to go? Beep. Me. American Printing House. Siri, is that American Printing House at 1839 Frankfurt Avenue? Beep. <clears throat> Sorry. Me. Yes. Siri, request sent. The Lyft or Uber apps would then open. I would like to see the ability to link the GPS apps with Apple Maps for a route. I find that many of the POIs on existing GPS programs are outdated. I don't expect perfection, but if a business hasn't been at a particular location for over two years, I think something is amiss. This is off topic, but I will say it anyway. I have written to Amazon about this one. I have a hearing loss and I sometimes wish the soup drinker could be made to enunciate better. This, I think, would be by giving a greater emphasis to consonants. Thanks, Rick. I would be interested in knowing if you have tried the new male voice that is available certainly with the United States market and whether you find that any better. Rick concludes, I use the app for Spectrum TV, our cable provider. One of the accessibility options is closed captioning. These come through on my Braille displays. However, they are so fleeting that they are not useful. I would like to have more of a scrolling experience. I would be able to read about five minutes of captioning at a time. I could then sync it with what I was hearing. Some very well thought through ideas there, Rick. Thank you so much for sharing them. Hey, Jonathan. Brett Wilhelm here from O'Fallon, Missouri. With WWDC around the corner, I thought I would mention something that is on my Apple wish list. I just got an Apple Watch Series 7, and one thing I was hoping it would have, and it does not appear to do this, is support for streaming audio to MFI hearing aids and cochlear implants. So I have two cochlear implants, and what I was really hoping I would be able to do is to go up to our neighborhood pool, go swimming with my watch, and stream music to my implants through the watch. I don't see a way to do this, and I think really 
Being able to stream audio to the implants from the watch would be awesome. In the meantime, I'm curious if anyone knows of a maybe some Bluetooth headphones that would be waterproof and would fit comfortably over my cochlear implant processors. And I do have the waterproof accessory for wearing them in the water. I should also mention I am using the Cochlear Nucleus 7 processors. So, hopefully someone out there has a suggestion. I'm really enjoying the podcast. Thanks. Bye. Oh, bye, Bert. I agree with you completely. And I think we were close in the last beta cycle. I'm pretty sure that it was then that I recall seeing what looked like the beginnings of a user interface for made for iPhone hearing aids to be supported on the Apple Watch. And then at some point during the cycle, it went away. So perhaps they concluded for whatever reason that they weren't quite ready for this yet. Maybe it'll come back in this beta cycle of watchOS. That would be great if that is the case. It is only the beginning of a resolution, though, because I don't know whether you, Brett, have an iPad and it's working for you. But when I had an iPad in addition to my iPhone, it would not seamlessly switch with my made-for-iPhone hearing aids, which are the Oticon Open S1. What I found was that despite having everything set up correctly, I would switch off my iPhone, put it into standby. It should then release the connection to the hearing aid. And what should then happen is that I should be able to unlock the screen of my iPad, having done all the pairing correctly, of course, beforehand, and the iPad should be sent to the MFI hearing aids. That never worked for me. And I did some troubleshooting with Apple Tech support. Eventually, they just dropped it. You know, I think they concluded that it was in the two-hand basket. So I ended up selling my iPad. I don't own an iPad now because I simply could not get VoiceOver to switch seamlessly after having dropped one device to another device. But if MFI hearing aid support comes to the watch and if they can get that sorted out for voiceover users, then it would really change the way that I use the watch because it would allow me to use podcasts and audio books and a range of other things that I'm not doing on the watch at the moment. So it would be a big one. So let's hope that it's in the release and that it actually works. After last week's episode, I realized I missed a trick. I missed a trick. I've got this sweep here that I could have played and I didn't, so I'll play it now. And now it's time for more Adventures in Android. This has been unfolding for a couple of episodes now after Google announced that in Android 13, TalkBack would include Braille support without the need to install BrailleBack. People's excitement about this has been tempered by the fact that it looked as if TalkBack in Android 13 was not going to have support for HID, human interface device, Braille displays. These are considered to be the future because the idea is that you can plug and play, simply connect a Braille device, and it should work. If, and it's a big if, all Braille display manufacturers adhere to the protocol, and all screen readers support it. Humanware has gone all in with its newer devices, and of course that affects the American printing house devices as well, Mantis and Chameleon. It affects Humanware's Bradiant, and it also affects the NLS National Library Service devices in the United States that have been manufactured by Humanware. The Library of Congress in the US is using two manufacturers, so you may get the Humanware one or you may not. 
Other Braille display manufacturers, such as Orbit Research, are also supporting HID, but they've hedged their bets and they have a backward compatibility mode, which means that they emulate older, more widely supported Braille displays as well. In the last exciting and enthralling episode of this saga, I took you through the atrocious tech support experience I had from Google just trying to get a straight answer. Is it actually true that TalkBack in Android 13 is not going to support head displays? I realized actually that there is a threshold that we reach and that threshold will differ from person to person where a tech support experience that you are having is so bad it actually gets funny and the only way to cope with it is to laugh and wonder how long it will go on and how much worse can it get. In episode 179, we got to the point where I asked this person to please escalate this to a supervisor because they were not reading what I was writing. They were not making any attempt to answer my question. I then got a reply in which he declined to escalate my issue to a supervisor, repeating the same questions all over again about what version of Android I was running, what device I had, etc., which have no relevance to the question that I was asking. I then wrote back and said, since you are declining to escalate this to a supervisor, could you please advise what official process exists to lodge a formal complaint about the technical support experience that I'm receiving? And I got the same thing back again. Basically, I'm not going to tell you anything unless you tell me what version of Android you have and what version of TalkBack you're running and all of this malarkey. By this stage, episode 179 had been published. And as I expected, people were appalled that a company like Google could provide this level of lack of helpfulness, lack of comprehension, lack of cooperation. And so there was a bit of chatter about this on Twitter. I made reference to it on Twitter and got back that canned response again, asking me to please go to this URL and complete the form there so they could escalate and troubleshoot further. So I made comments about it being Groundhog Day at Google Tech Support. And what happened was a number of people said, this account is clearly being staffed by bots. There's no other explanation We know that Google dabbles in artificial intelligence. Clearly, we are being (laughs) experimented on here as blind people. (laughs) And artificial intelligence is running rampant on this Twitter account. Now, what was interesting about this, and this observation was made by several people on Twitter, is that that actually elicited a response that was off the script. If you're in England, you'll be well familiar with this. If you're not, you may not be. But it's like one of those old English pantomimes where you say, this thing is a bot. And they all come back and they go, oh, no, we're not. And of course, it's your job in a pantomime to say, oh, yes, you are. And they come back and they say, oh, no, we're not. And that's what happened here, you see. They came back and they said, no, this Twitter account is actually staffed by people from the Google accessibility team, to which many people on Twitter who've been following the saga went, oh, brother. But all this Twitter dialogue seems to have woken somebody up with a modicum of customer service because they got back to me and said, sorry for the trouble. Could you give us the reference number for this inquiry and we'll look into it further? And I gave the reference number. And at that point, things changed dramatically. I got a sensible reply via email. 
apologising for the difficulty I've had in getting a straight answer and acknowledging that the audience of this podcast want an answer too. So I do want to thank the wider Mosin at Large community. Together, we can get stuff done. And I finally do have an answer from Google to my question. Now, it may not be the answer you want, but it is the answer I think most of us were expecting. After APH went public with their comment, they would not have made that public comment without very good cause. And here's what I got. Hi, Jonathan Mosen. We hope you are doing well. I'm doing very well, Google. Thank you for asking. Google continues. Thanks for your interest in Braille with a lowercase b display head support in TalkBack. We are happy to inform you that TalkBack 13.0 will have built-in support for Braille displays without having to download a separate app and provide a better experience overall for Braille users. For now, we are focusing on providing a great experience for devices that connect through the Bluetooth RFCOM in brackets serial protocol, which is the protocol used by most customers we talk with. We are also looking at the Braille with an uppercase B head standard because we know one major display manufacturer has switched their product line from serial protocol to Braille head. Thank you for providing your feedback so that we can make the best product for everyone. We would be happy to help you if there is any inquiry regarding assistive technology accessibility features or Google products, feel free to write back. Thank you for contacting the Google Disability Support Team. Now, that was a very carefully worded email. Someone senior, either in comms or product management or a combination of both, wrote that email. And I am encouraged by that because it means that this issue with head support has got on somebody's radar who can actually make a difference. And it said the bare minimum. It has made it clear that there will be no head Braille support in the initial version of TalkBack that supports Braille when Android 13 is released. So that confirms what APH have told us, as I expected would be the case. It declines to answer the rest of my questions, though. Why is this the case? They've spun this to suggest that it's because they're concentrating on supporting the protocol that most people use and that that's their emphasis because they're serving most of their customers My understanding is that there may be a bit more to it than that, as I mentioned last week, that there is a problem with supporting head via Bluetooth because of the Bluetooth stack in Android devices, and that it might take some cross-functional effort. We have got a bit of a chicken and egg situation here. One of the reasons why even some new displays are emulating older displays is because companies like Google are dragging the chain on head. So someone's got to blink first, right? We're in this really weird game of high-tech Braille chicken. And if you are launching a new feature like supporting Braille in a screen reader, it would make sense, would it not, to go with the future as well as ensure as much maximum backward compatibility as you can. But you have the answer there. The question is, what do we do about it? What does humanware in particular do about it? If you have any thoughts, 864-60-MOSIN is my phone number, 864-606-6736. Email me at jonathan at mushroomfm.com. I do want to discuss a related issue with you, though, and I think it's quite important. It's a difficult one, and it is this. When I wasn't getting any sort of meaningful response from Google after about a week and a half of this, I contacted a couple of technology journalists, and I'm not going to name them because I still have hope that maybe one day I can foster a positive relationship with them. 
I chose the journalists carefully. One was from a Google-specific publication, another was from a general technology publication, but both of them had written stories in recent times on Google, and specifically Google accessibility. I'm kind of over the fact that I have to preface some of these comments with what I'm about to say, but I will anyway, just to make it clear, every day when I use technology at home, in my job, in all walks of life, I am amazed and incredibly grateful for how far we've come. But we've got some problems with mainstream companies providing lackluster accessibility that impedes our productivity and our independence. And I take Brow particularly seriously because deafblind people in particular are extremely vulnerable when the Braille breaks. What frustrates me about the coverage of mainstream technology supporting accessibility is that it is very superficial. Part of this, I've concluded, is sheer laziness on the part of journalists. Another part is low expectations that non-disabled people have of disabled people. And part of it is also that they just don't think enough of their readers will be interested in the nitty-gritty. So it makes them feel good when they run a release say from Google in this instance, on Global Accessibility Awareness Day that talks about all the marvellous things that are coming in accessibility in TalkBack. And indeed, many of them are marvellous. But then when somebody points out to them, actually, there is a really serious issue here relating to Braille. That interferes with their narrative that this is all just marvellous and peachy and all is right with the world. So when I wrote to these tech journalists who had recently covered Google's accessibility initiatives. I said to them, imagine what would happen if there was a really popular printer on the market or a really popular monitor on the market. And there was an open standard that an operating system manufacturer had agreed to support pertaining to that monitor or that printer. And then it turns out they're going to shut out a popular manufacturer of monitors or printers You'd cover that, wouldn't you? I said to the journalists. So can you cover this issue with head braille displays? I never heard a thing back from either journalist. This incidentally is something that I raised when I interviewed Ned Desmond. We need more disabled technology journalists and we need more disabled technology journalists who will write more than the fluff pieces the likes of which we get from some of the disabled tech journalists that are published. Of course, we should talk about the way that it has changed our lives, but we should also talk about some of the real concerns that are ongoing that we've canvassed in this podcast and that affect our lives every day. We've got to get in there. And if anybody has any thoughts on how we raise awareness of some of these ongoing issues with mainstream manufacturers providing assistive technology, then be my guest. The reason why it's important is that when mainstream tech media starts to cover some of these defects, it puts the pressure on. Here's Daniel Semro, who says, Hey, Jonathan, you may or may not remember when we talked on the Blind Podmaker about my issues that I was having at the time with my Focus 40 Blue. To recap, for those who weren't listening to that presentation, my .4 key was unusable with the exception of a little bit of typing. 
but as far as navigation, it was unusable. Anyway, I called Vespero about two weeks ago and scheduled it for repair. Since then, it has been sent in and repaired. I will have it once again in my hands by Thursday or Friday. I feel bad for my parents, though, as they had to pay $875.75 US for the work. They had to replace my main board, eight dome keys, two braille with a lowercase b cells, and the battery. And they also deep-cleaned the braille cell blocks themselves. At least they took the $15 shipping off. I was very impressed with the technical support experience, the professionalism of the RMA team, and the quick repair job they did on my display. Ah, nothing like having a brow display in pristine condition, Daniel. I'm sure that you will enjoy that. Hey, Jonathan, this is Jim East from sunny Florida. I wanted to share with you in the audience, not like it will affect your lives much, that on the 24th, I'm going to be having total knee joint replacement surgery on my left knee. The reason I tell you about this is that the last, few years, we've been using an app, which I find to be very accessible uh, with my doctor's offices and stuff with the uh, University of Florida Health Shands organization. And it's called MyChart. And MyChart uh, apparently is out of some company, I think out of Pennsylvania or New Jersey or something. But uh, when it started out, it had problems. But you know, the people from MyChart, when I shared concerns, they were welcoming feedback. So the people here in Gainesville put me in touch with them or them in touch with me. And we had a few conversations and I think that others were probably had input too that were using screen readers, but they've actually done a really, really good job. I don't believe there's a part of my chart that's not accessible to people who use uh, the iPhone and voiceover. I don't know about large print or, or anything like that. I, I'm totally blind right now. I have been for a number of years, but I find my chart to be very accessible. So if people are involved in any large organizations and their medical organization in particular, and they have an app or are looking into getting one, uh, my chart's great. It schedules, you schedule your appointments. I don't take those annoying appointment cards with me because what good are they for me anyway, right? I don't have a fireplace, so uh, fire kindling is not a good idea. So. My chart, uh, it's good stuff. So I thought I would share that. And going back to my original question with uh, uh, Breitbart, um, I just couldn't get it to save after I'd fill in the uh, forms. Uh, it was just really giving me all kinds of problems. And I had a hard time finding my event and it just it wasn't working well. So I've gotten sighted assistance to do that. Congratulations, Jim, on the role that you played there in advocating for improved accessibility. It goes to show we can all do our bit and make the world a more inclusive place. Most important of all, though, all the very best for your surgery. I hope that goes okay. Robert Kinjit has a shiny new gadget, but sadly it's not working out so well. And he writes, Hi, Jonathan and company. I was hoping you could help with a voiceover output problem. Lately, even after getting a new iPhone SE 3, voiceover will suddenly and abruptly adopt the same kind of output heard when you are in a phone call. I could be reading an email, and then, all of a sudden, voiceover sounds like I am on an active phone call on speakerphone. I am not on an active phone call. When I play some piece of audio again or any media, 
Then voiceover behaves normally and stops sounding as if we're on an active phone call. I've tried disabling Bluetooth and never have this problem again. I'd like to keep Bluetooth enabled because I often play media through my Echo 4th generation device without using the Soup Drinker or the Soup Drinker app. In my limited testing, I am sure of a few things. There is no pattern I can detect. The switch to phone mode with voiceover happens randomly when no audio is playing. If another Bluetooth speaker is connected and playing audio, audio just stops as if the iPhone isn't sure where to play the audio. This does not happen when playing audio from the iPhone to my Echo device. I haven't tried removing any Bluetooth speakers yet, but I've got connected via Bluetooth a Zag Limitless Keyboard, JBL Clip 3 Shower Speaker, Amazon Echo 4th Generation, Does anyone have any ideas as to what is happening? Perhaps the Echo is somehow appearing to iOS as a phone, so voiceover is suddenly speaking like we're in a phone call. I hope somebody can help you with this one, Robert. Because we're a Sonos household, we don't use the Echoes as speakers for iOS, so it's not something I've tried. I think there is something behind your theory, though. But if anybody has any words of wisdom to share on this, Please chime in. It must be a very frustrating thing when it happens. The only thing I can think of off the top of my head to ask is whether when it gets into this state, is there a rotor option that has appeared called audio destination? And if there is, and you change the audio destination, does that make a difference? Good luck. And hopefully somebody can help. Hello, Mosin at Larders. I'm uh, just uh, making some comments about the fitness activity i'm one of the subscribers or or better saying i was one of the subscribers fitness uh, fitness plus and um, i um, quit the subscription simply because are just few just few exercises there with uh, audio description or proper made for blind or visually impaired people for those who are in the position to have a, I don't know, uh, some residual sight good enough to uh, watch a big a big screen or whatever, it's fine. But for me, as a completely blind person, it's absolutely useless. So I quit this subscription. But because I had in my mind for a long time to make something in regards the fitness and exercises and this kind of thing isn't it i uh, found in the end a way to deal with this situation as a blind person and my choice is to go to the gym i know it's not easy for anyone but for me it was difficult in the very beginning for probably for the first couple of weeks for the first day days was a bit difficult because i had to arrive to the center there in my own, I was there before with some other people, but never walking, never being in my own. So I put up my phone. I was ringing a member of family and uh, trying to help me a little bit from the point where the little roads get in the parking. So I had to cross over the parking area and to reach the door of the leisure center where I'm going to the gym. So I'm proud from uh, the beginning of August last uh, year 
actually I didn't miss the day from the program which I was uh, making for myself as a routine. I'm going to the gym six days in a week, six days, Monday to Saturday, Sundays, one day off. So I'm proud for my um, commitment. So um, after a while, I, I've started to reap the benefits. So I've lost 17 kilos, I've changed my uh, lifestyle. I've changed my blood pressure situation because I I have started to go to the gym and they take I took this decision to go regular and to make this change in my life because I started to put lots of weight during the pandemic because I started to have uh, blood pressure issues and even a mini stroke which didn't affect me too much but was a strong signal I can't afford to have no care for my uh, health and for my exercise routines. As I said, now I do one hour of cross trainer. I do 25 minutes of rowing machine. That's my daily program. And twice in a week, I'm going to sauna for half an hour. How I have started, I just told you, was the very beginning. It was an interesting story with the staff, which... uh, I had to deal with in the very beginning, like any other, you know, particular organization or place where blind people wish to go or to be involved, may appear some problems in here and there. And when they've they've seen I was coming there day after day after day after a few days, they said, "Well, do you have a friend to come with you? I, we're not we're not sure we can ensure your." Um, I said, I will see. And then after a few days, they came again with the same question. And I said, let's have a chat with the manager. And I was going to the manager and I said, look, I'm intending to come six days in a week here in this center to do my exercise. If you can offer me this particular help to go from the changing room to the machine and to help me to move from a machine to the other, it's not necessary to stay after me. You can go, you can make your other jobs. I don't need assistance for the whole period of time spent in the gym. Okay. So I said, if I'll find a friend, I'll come with a friend. I, I'll take this burden out of you, but I can guarantee I can find any friend or relative or person interested to come with me six days in a week. That's for sure. <laughs> so I said with friend or with a friend I'll be here six days in a week and uh, they said nothing I said nothing and I was carrying on and uh, t- we are very good friends now I think I know all the stuff there all the shifts they've changed the shifts I, um, it's a medium sized center they've got a swimming pool they've got all, all sorts of machineries there why I've decided this? Another option was to buy a couple of uh, machines here. Uh, I mean, the cross trainer and rowing machine to have them in my flat and and do exercise in, in, in my flat here. I said, well, I have to be seen by, by the sun, no? isn't it? <laughs> so if, if the sun doesn't see you, probably the doctor will see you soon. And um, I know myself, if I will have the, uh, the machines here, probably will be a week or two until I'll get out one step out of my flat. So uh, I said, I'm going to the gym. It's 55 minutes walk 
from my flat to that center if I'm walking slowly as a blind person and getting by bus is under half an hour. But when it's nice weather, I'm walking when uh, I'm in hurry or it's bad weather, I use the bus. Life is good. Life is good. I've got good, good friends now in the uh, center there. They know me. I left them good reviews on Google and slowly, slowly we became friends. They know my routine. They give me a hand. Everything gets smooth and nice uh, when it's about the gym there. So I don't know how much was, uh, how much they were prepared to offer the help. I don't know how much they were offering the help just to not get in problem for health and, you know, safety things. But I was ending up in uh, having a good uh, relation with the staff and I'm keep going to, to the gym. Thank you for listening. And I encourage you to start doing something. Stop talking about this and start doing. <laughs> Thank you again. And congrats for this nice podcast. What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. Or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-60-66736. Hello, Jonathan. This is Joe Norton here in Dalton, Georgia, the United States again. I wanted to thank you for mentioning that book, Exploding the Phone, by Phil Lapsley. There are two audio versions available, and I wanted to mention something about that that might be of interest to some listeners. The book is available on Bard, and the Bard version is narrated by Bill Hensel, and he really did a pretty good job narrating it. He sounds enthusiastic, and of course, with the NLS narrators read all the footnotes and various things like that, which commercial narrators don't always do. One of the little pet peeves, though, that I had with him is that there were certain words that he didn't know how the phone people pronounced them. So, for example, the expression rate and root, uh, he pronounced it as rate and route. And the word rooting, he pronounced routing. But in phone nomenclature, that's the uh, former pronunciation is what's used. But at any rate, it's still a good narration, especially the fact that it doesn't cost anything. But the audible version I do love that version because it is narrated by a former phone freak, uh, Johan North, who in the 70s and 80s went by the freak handle Evan Doorbell, and he is very familiar with how the old phone system worked in the 70s and 80s, and so the nomenclature, you don't have to worry about that. Anything phone-related, he's going to say it the right way. I've known Johan for quite some time. And I asked him about the narration process. It turns out that there's an interesting story behind that narration. In compiling the book, Phil Lapsley interviewed Johan as one of the former freaks in the book. Johan has done phone tape narration, and he thought, I could narrate this book. He approached Phil with the idea, and Phil thought it was a great idea. So studio time was arranged. Johan found that, on average, he was making about three mistakes per paragraph. When he offered to do his own editing, it turned out there was someone in the studio that wanted to be paid to do the editing, and Johan didn't make too much of a fuss about it, and everything worked out okay. He found that his limit was about two hours a day, which I understand is common for full-time narrators, if I remember correctly. There was one unfortunate side effect. Johan was consuming energy drinks to perk himself up for the narration, 
and this caused problems with teeth grinding at night, which caused a couple of his teeth to be broken. These were teeth that had previously had root canals done on them. Still, he is glad to have done the narration, and I do highly recommend the audible version if at all possible. I don't think, though, that he's going to be narrating any more audiobooks anytime soon. Speaking of Johann North, I'd like to mention the website that he has put together. It is www.evan-doorbell.com, and I'll spell that out. It's E-V-A-N-D-O-O-R-B-E-L-L.com. In this website are featured many of the recordings that were made of the Analog Network in the 70s. Back at that time, Johan and his friend Ben went around New York City especially and recorded a whole lot of tapes from payphones. And beginning probably in the early 2000s or possibly the late 90s, he decided to digitize these tapes and has since put many of them on the Internet and has been able to actually narrate them. So if you go to that website, evan-doorbell.com, and look in the production section, you'll find close to 300 tapes that explain different facets of the analog network of the 70s, including local sounds, long-distance calls, and many other aspects of the network that are almost non-existent today. The network is quite different now from what it was then, but some really fascinating material. There's a couple of short tapes from Great Britain. One of the things that I was amazed at when listening to the recordings from Britain was the dial tone. The dial tone that you hear now from Britain, I believe, is 350 hertz and 450 hertz. At least I think that's what it is. I'm not 100% sure. I need to Google it, I suppose. But the old dial tone was actually kind of a sound that was more like... And when I first heard that, I was amazed. I was like, wow, that's different. And if I had picked up a phone and just heard that and didn't know what I was listening to, I would have thought I was listening to maybe the ring voltage or the ringing current for something like that. I wouldn't have known what that was to start with. But I would have probably tried to dial something on it, my curiosity being the way it is. But if you want to go to that website and give it a listen, if you're of a technical nature, I think you'll find a lot of fascinating material on the old network. Also, in the production section, you'll find a sort of a documentary that uh, Johan is making about how he became a phone freak. So it's rather interesting material as well. But something about the phones, I can say I've had a little bit of sort of phone freaking experience. I don't necessarily consider myself a full-fledged phone freak like uh, some of the ones that you read about in the book, but I did a pretty good bit of uh, exploring around the system. It all started when I was probably about seven years old, and I'd had a cousin come down to visit us from Dalton, Georgia, which is in the northwest corner of the state, famous for carpets. Anyway, he came down to visit, and I was living in Macon, Georgia at the time, which is in the middle part of the state. Anyway, he said something about calling the time, and I wondered what he meant by that. My mom looked up the phone number, and we called it, and I was amazed. Hey, you can call this number, and it'll tell you what time it is, and it plays a little advertisement. And Anyway, I thought that was neat, so I wondered what sort of a machine was this. I had really didn't know what to picture, since the only phone device I'd ever seen was a phone. But at any rate, I started to think about what other things you could call, and there were things like dial-a-prayer and some other things like that. And then I came up to visit my sister here, and she uh, showed me the time number, and she also showed me the movie information number, where you could see what was playing at the various theaters in Dalton. 
Well, I went back to Macon and I was asking my parents, or asking my mom rather, how to call my family back here in Dalton. She thought that probably wasn't a bad idea to make sure I knew how to do that just in case. So she gave me my different relatives' phone numbers. But what I did, of course, was to proceed to call things. I called my relatives. One of the short calls I made, which back then you didn't want to make a short long distance call unless you absolutely had to, because long distance rates being what they were, I bet that phone call probably cost 50, 60 cents somewhere along there. Uh, One time I called up my cousin and she picked up the phone. I said, Hey, Selena. She said, Hey, I said, what you doing? She said, nothing. I said, well, bye. Bye, and we hung up. And that's not much for 60 cents, especially back in 1975. 60 cents could buy a lot more than it does today. But anyway, I was calling that. I was calling the time. I was calling the movie information number and various things like that. And just having a good old time. Didn't know what the phone bill was going to be. One thing that I also discovered was that I wanted to know what would happen if I called one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, zero, just kept dialing out till I dialed all the numbers. Now, later on, I read the book Curious George, and uh, it called the fire department for him, but that wasn't what happened to me. But I will tell you what did happen. So before I continue, I would like to mention that the two examples you're about to hear are from material that was found on the evan-doorbell.com website. The first call, however, is what I would call an amalgamation. I took the ring from a call to one city and the recording from a call to another city so that you could have as close to the same audio experience that I had back in 1975 when I made this call. The recording that you're hearing, however, is from Savannah, Georgia, and I do believe that it is the very same recording that I first heard back when I was about seven years old when I went to the phone and tried my little experiment. The actual call you're about to hear was dialed in February of 1977. So I picked up the phone and proceeded to dial 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and when it got to 8, this happened. Wait, it's doing something. What's it? Where's it going? Is That sounds like long distance. Listen to that a hiss. And a few seconds later... The phone rang. In fact, the ring did something interesting. It sort of hiccuped. And a few seconds later, I got a recording. We're sorry. You have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. If you feel you have reached this recording in error, please check the number or try your call again. Now, I was seven years old. I didn't know where this was, and it said something about I had reached this recording in ERA. Is ERA the name of the place? I didn't realize that ERA is the southern pronunciation for error, because I still had a lot of words that I needed to learn as I was growing up. So the recording repeats, says exactly the same thing, and I sat there and listened, and it, it did something really unusual. It went to a special operator that asked, what number did I dial? That was absolutely amazing to me then. I'd never heard of a recording playing and then sending you somewhere else. So that was even more surprising. And then something that was even more surprising than that happened. The phone bill came. 
and that phone bill, I believe, was about $60 or so. And back in 1975, just imagine what $60 was worth. I'm not sure what that's worth now, but I think that was probably more than two-thirds of my dad's paycheck. So that was not a very good thing to happen. In fact, what my parents had to do was to cut the phone off. I think they had to make payments on it or something like that. So I was without phone service for about a month or so, maybe a little bit more than that. And I did not want that to happen again. Well, my next thought was, what if I went to someone else's house? You know, the phone bill comes here, so if I go to my neighbor's house and make a phone call, maybe nobody will know anything about it. So I tried that. That kind of backfired on me, of course, because, of course, the bill came. Then we went to a total stranger's house that we'd never met before. And I was there, and I was like, can I use your phone? And they said, sure. Yeah. And I picked up the phone and was calling the time. Yeah, this sounds just like the phone at home. In fact, it turned out it actually sounded better. I believe the telephone line may have been not as unbalanced as my own line was. Maybe they were closer to the central office. I'm not really sure. But anyway, I was standing there just dialing one number after another, and there was a girl sitting there that was the daughter, and she kept saying, who are you calling? Who are you calling? I didn't say anything, just kept dialing. Well, we eventually left, and I thought everything was cool, but then about three or so weeks later, the lady, I guess, had come to my mom or called her or something, and if I've got this story right, I believe she actually hid the phone bill from her husband because she was afraid of what he'd say when he saw it. So... <laughs> That had to be straightened out. And you know, we never visited those people again. I wonder why. Needless to say, I knew that I had to do something better if I was going to keep learning about the phone. Over the years, I knew that I could call numbers as long as nothing answered. Those recordings, for example, that tell you that a number is not in service, generally they don't answer, and they were all different depending on what part of the country you called. Back in those days, they didn't have standard voice recordings for the most part, or if they did, they were regional. But I was also afraid of what would happen when the call was answered. Well, as time went by, I figured out something about the way the telephone company worked. At that time, they had something in place which I believe is called supervision grace. So I guess just to explain the term supervision, what I mean by that is that when you make a long-distance call, or even a local call, when the phone at the far end is picked up, a signal is sent back to your central office, letting them know that the call has been answered, and they can start billing you for it if that's necessary. So what Bell decided to do, the phone company, I guess I should say, they decided that if a customer were already hanging up the phone, that they would give them a certain amount of time to do that and not charge the customer. Say, for example, if you were hanging up the phone, the phone was headed from your ear to the cradle. Even if the person that you called picked up the phone, you would already be hanging up. So I think they just decided to give you that couple of seconds. It was usually about two and a half seconds or so, or maybe two and a third is what one person told me. So if you hung up during that time, during that very short period of time, you would not be charged. And as time went by, I figured out how to listen for that particular sound that showed me that I was about to be charged for it. Let me see if I can demonstrate it real quick. So here is an example of a typical call similar to one that I might have made back in the day. Okay, the number's been dialed, and the call is going through. Now you hear the long-distance sound come up, and in just a few seconds, the phone is going to ring at the far end. 
There it goes. And I guess this gentleman is walking to the phone to see who's on the other end. And in just a moment, you'll hear a couple of clicks when he answers. Hello. And I'm gone. I don't want to get charged for this call. Of course, this gentleman's probably a little bit annoyed. He went to answer his phone. There wasn't anybody there much. (laughs) Anyway, okay, so now I'm just going to play the clicks back. And you'll hear two sets of clicks. You'll hear one when the call is answered. And see if you can hear the next one. I'm going to slow it down here. So I don't know if you heard that kind of a clump, bump sound. I slowed that down again. That first little clump was when the phone was picked up at the other end. Then there was a much sharper kind of a pump click. And that's the click that I would always listen for. And when I heard that click, my finger was on that button pretty quick because I didn't want to get charged after all. Sometimes my curiosity would get the better of me, but usually it didn't. So there were probably a lot of people that got their phone rang by me throughout the country, but none usually the same twice. So hopefully it didn't annoy too many people. Anyway, when you mention books, one other thing I keep forgetting to mention, I don't know if you've read the Ender series, but one of the characters in the books by Orson Scott Card, the book called Ender's Game is the first one that he wrote, There's a character in there that is supposed to be half Maori, and his name is Mazer Rackham. And I was just wondering, does that sound like a name that you might possibly hear in New Zealand? I suspect that our noise reduction algorithms may have taken care of some of that hiss, unfortunately. And it's a bit hard for me to isolate this one recording from that because of the way that we process things. But hopefully you heard the rings and the clicks and everything. Okay, you brought back so many memories, Joe, of answering machines. I was fascinated by answering machines as a kid. We had one that the local picture theater ran, and you would call it when no one was there and hear what was coming up and when it was screening. I was interested in just hearing the message, so if they answered, I would quickly hang up. We also had a -a dial-a-prayer and another one called dial-a-message that was a sort of a sermon, really, and there was dial-a-bible reading. There was dial-a-story for a while. There was also one that belonged to the VD clinic, the venereal disease clinic. And in some parts of New Zealand then, we only had five-digit numbers. There was a lot of variation. There wasn't the consistency that we have now with our numbering plan. And I still remember that if you called 33123, and anyone listening in Auckland, New Zealand from that area will remember this, you got the answering machine about (laughs) the venereal disease clinic and what you can do if you had this. And we used to go around singing this little song that we made up about 33123, please help me, I've got VD. I don't know whether many of us really knew what VD was in those days. (laughs) But yeah, I used to have all sorts of fun playing with the phone. But the answering machines were my fascination. And I don't even know how I discovered this, but I somehow found out that if you whistled a certain way, you could trigger certain answering machines. I guess it was like a variation on the whole Captain Crunch thing that is so legendary in US circles. So I found that by whistling, I could get into answer machines, sometimes change the outgoing message, but certainly clear the messages, do all sorts of things. And one day, I was playing with an answering machine that belonged to a company called Crosby's Electrical. And the only reason why I discovered it was that it had a phone number on our exchange, 69999. And I was curious about who had that number. 
and I dialed it. When I found out that it had an answering machine, I was just ecstatic. And then when I managed to whistle a fifth octave B and find that that was the thing that triggered the playback of the answer machine and getting into the special mode. And you could get it to do really cool things. It would say, thank you for calling. This machine is now closing down to await further telephone calls. That was a cool message. And anyway, I was playing with this and my dad said, Jonathan, will you stop playing with the phone and come and eat lunch? Obviously, by this stage, I had arisen the suspicion of the people who ran this business about who was playing with the phone. And they were listening on the call, or maybe the machine was recording. I don't remember which, but they had the magic ingredient. They had my name by then. Next weekend, I think it was, I was calling and just fooling with this answering machine. Next thing I know, I hear this really scary, booming voice saying, Jonathan. Should you be playing with a telephone like that? God, I jumped like 10 feet into the air. I was so spooked by this. And I slammed that phone down. But a couple of weeks went by and I thought I'd give it another go. And then I was just playing. And next thing I know, Jonathan, it said again. Well, that really did it. Well, not long after that, I had a tape recorder that stopped working. And my parents said, well, we're obviously going to have to get it looked at. Let's take it into Crosby's Electrical. It's local. And I was like, no, don't go there. I was literally shaking when they took this tape recorder in there in case they worked out that I was the person who had been fooling with their answering machine. But they didn't make the connection, I do not believe. Or if they did, they wanted the money for repairing the tape recorder. And then when we were teenagers, we were still interested in the phone. And some of us got access to this little remote control that belonged to an answer phone that was quite commonly used at radio stations because it used two standard cassettes. And the quality was very good and it was quite flexible. And the benefit of it using standard cassettes was that you could record in a studio if you were in a radio station copy the recording onto a cassette, and then put that cassette into the machine for the outgoing message. So it sounded really good. And there were radio stations using these things for snow reports and news services and all sorts of things. And my late friend Marcel and I bought one of these machines each because we were quite interested in answer phones even then. And that meant that we had the little remote control And there was only a set number of configurations for this little remote that you would put up to the mouthpiece of the phone and you would push the button and it would play this little bleep, 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 bleep down the phone and let you in. And once you were in, you could change the outgoing message. You could do all sorts of things because it had a little multi-position switch on the side of the phone. And so you would flick that switch to wherever you needed it to be and then press the button and get all kinds of signals to this machine. I suppose it was quite advanced for the mid-1980s. And my friend Marcel, he was really into making electronic music. He had an Insonic Mirage. And I remember that machine because you would put a blank... 3.5 inch disc into it and you'd press a key on a keyboard and it would say this is a blank formatted diskette but he had a little studio of sorts I guess he worked with open reel and things and he would put together his own electronic music and one day we dialed into this snow report that we thought was very boring just giving the ski conditions for the slopes a long way away and 
Marcel provided the music and I did the button pressing and we actually overrode this radio station's snow report, which they were advertising heavily, you know, call our snow report line for the latest ski conditions. And in the place of the outgoing message, we put some of Marcel's music instead. And we just took great joy in calling it up and hearing Marcel's music there. We really were naughty. As for your book question, Joe, that doesn't sound like a Māori name, but of course, sometimes names come from the other half of the parent's lineage. If someone's half Māori and they may have ancestry from another place, then they could have an English or some other kind of sounding name. But that definitely doesn't sound like a Māori name to me. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at M-O-S-E-N dot org. Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. We've referred on a couple of episodes of the podcast to After Steve. It's a new book all about Apple and the post-jobs era by journalist Trip Mickle. Its subtitle is How Apple Became a Trillion Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul. So to discuss the book, I am joined by the author, Trip Mickle. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Got to say, I love the book. I read it on my iPhone, and I did think that the iPhone was getting a bit hotter during some parts of it. So, you know, it obviously was getting the effect of its ears burning or something like that, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. that's great. That's great. (laughs) Apple is a notoriously secretive company, and it's famously intolerant of leaks. Obviously, some of your sources will have been former employees, but you must have built up a lot of trust for people to give you the degree of TikTok that you got. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I covered the company for the better part of four years and uh, spent about seven intensive months working on the book in terms of reporting and writing. So during the course of that, I have an opportunity to go to people you know and say, look, this is going to be a different type of undertaking than what you're accustomed to. This isn't you know, an article that's going to pop out and generate some headlines tomorrow. This is something that's going to stay on bookshelves for a really long time. And uh, I think you should give some thought to talking to me and people were persuaded some, it took more time than others, but I think persuaded in part because they recognize that what they went through in the aftermath of, of Steve Jobs death was unique in corporate history. I mean, you really don't get a founder who, who dies much less a founder who's as beloved as Steve Jobs was by the people who worked for him. And so I think there was a real conviction on their part to share their perspective and share their experience because it, it was so distinguished among what's happened in business history. Did it get a bit clandestine at times because Apple really does not tolerate leaking among its staff? Yeah, you know, they don't, but also you're dealing with people who are having to make those judgments on them by themselves on an individual basis. And many people wrestle with that. Some people are quicker to want to, to talk and share their stories than others, but others want to wait and see, you know, all right, how serious are you? And there's a bit of, you know, testing to see whether or not you're committed to getting the full story. And sometimes you go back to somebody and say, well, you know, I was doing some reporting last week and some research and I learned this about this event. And they'll, they'll say to you, really? You knew Johnny Ive was, you know, on a, a cleanse during the watch development process? Like how, how in the world do you know that? And then, you know, all of a sudden, um, you have a breadcrumb of currency that, 
that cracks the door a little bit and uh, and they take you a little more seriously. Tim Cook was Steve Jobs' handpicked successor. Do you think that Jobs got that wrong? I don't think so, actually. I mean, I, when you look at the executive ranks at the time of Jobs' death and who was among them, he had to choose somebody who could build consensus among the group that remained. And the one person among those people who had shown the real ability to do that in many ways was Tim Cook. He'd, he'd run an operations division that was really built on consensus and working together in close collaboration. And the reason that was important after Jobs' death was that Jobs was so involved in the creative aspects of the company that they revolved around him. I mean, they, you know, he was the center of their orbit. And so he would spend time in sessions with Scott Forstall defining what the user interface would look like for the iPhone and then bounce over to Johnny Ives' design studio and make a suggestion about the rounding of a corner on the physical aspect of the iPhone. And then a few days later, he'd be in a session with the uh, advertising team from Media Arts Lab making suggestions about how they should market and promote the iPhone. And those were the things that really worked together in harmony to distinguish Apple during that period of, of its golden years between 2000 and 2010. So it interests me that you talk about that consensus style that Cook would bring, because isn't that the absolute antithesis of Steve Jobs? That the reason why Apple worked so well is that Steve Jobs ruled with his iron fist and he told people how it was. And so when Tim Cook came along with that consensus style, it was almost like they got rudderless. Right. Uh, rudderless would be your turn of phrase. Um, but by the same token, what they needed to do was figure out a new way of operating because you'd taken the kind of general out of the military. You had to find some way to, to get the troops to move forward. And the best way to do that was to take the remaining lieutenants and galvanize them and build consensus and chart a path that could lead Apple ahead. Was it perfect? Was it flawless? No. And I think it was something that required an adjustment for a lot of people. And, you know, for people such as Johnny Ive, it was an adjustment that he was unwilling to live with for perpetuity. He eventually decided he would leave the company because the consensus style he found personally draining as he developed the watch and wound up in debates over how it should be marketed and promoted. If we were to write an alternative history, what kind of company do you think Apple would have become, say, had Scott Forstall become chief executive? Mm. That's an interesting proposal. Scott was so young at the time of Jobs' death, and while he had done a good job leading the team that he built, he'd been short-sighted in some of his uh, collaboration with colleagues across other divisions. And that short-sightedness and the clashing, like, and by short-sighted, I mean he'd had political clashes with figures such as Johnny Ive over the Antennagate scandal, wound up becoming a problem for him after Jobs was no longer there to protect and shield him. So it's really not possible for him to have been CEO in light of how he'd behaved before Jobs' death. Had he been CEO or become CEO, had he had, he had a different, say, bedside manner with his peers and become more endearing, I think you'd be looking at a company now, I mean, this is just a hypothetical, that would have the kind of Jobsian figure who was more involved in product because that's where Scott Forsell came out of. It was what was familiar to him. 
And that's what Apple doesn't have right now in Tim Cook. I mean, Tim Cook doesn't presume to know a lot about product and doesn't try to get involved in product development. There's a lot of talk in the book about the Apple Maps fiasco, I think, debacle. <laughs> it did, didn't get much worse than Apple Maps. And of course, Tim Cook did this very unusual, un-Apple-like mea culpa for Apple Maps and uh, managed Scott Forstall out of the building. Do you think, given that at the time, the business press were chattering about Tim Cook's competency and longevity, that he might have leveraged that Scott Forstall debacle to get him out of the organization? It's a great question. It would, be, it would be really interesting to ask Tim Cook directly about that himself. At the time of Scott Forstall's ouster, it was broadly understood among the, the top leaders of the company that, that Scott thought of himself as potentially the only other person who could be CEO of the company. And you can't help but look at that and wonder if Tim Cook also knew that as his peers did and saw that as a threat to his, his long-term leadership of the operation. I think the foremost concern of, of Tim Cook at that point, and this is fact, is that Scott Forsall was more of a threat to the consensus structure and organization that Tim Cook was trying to develop at that time because of his history of conflict with his peers. And that was more of a contributing factor. To, I mean, that was the primary reason that Scott Forsall was dismissed. It was less about maps than it was about years of buildup of distrust with his peers. All of us who follow Apple know the name Johnny Ive, and we know how excited, how swooning some Americans get because he would pop up on videos and he knew how to say aluminium properly. But perhaps many people didn't really know his backstory until reading your book because he's been quite a private kind of person. Reading the book, I was really struck by something. I thought to myself, Jobs and Ive – are like the Lennon and McCartney of technology, both extremely gifted, but somehow they were able to produce a whole when working together that was greater than the sum of the parts. What do you think Steve Jobs' second coming at Apple would have been like if he and I hadn't formed that close bond? Well, it's interesting to think about it as, as Jobs' second coming because in his first stint at Apple, he'd found a partnership and a partner in uh, Steve Wozniak mm. with a very different skill set than, than Johnny Ive but one that was equally important. I mean, it was absolutely critical, I guess, to to the inception of Apple. Um, and so when he returned and he found another partner to work with in Johnny Ive, the way that they complemented each other, as the book details, was not just in Jobs playing the role of editor to Johnny Ive's artistic sensibilities or Johnny Ive playing the role of dreamer to Jobs' product sensibilities, which was a way that they worked together and pushed and pulled each other. But also, in a sense, they balanced each other, I think, kind of emotionally as well. There's an interesting anecdote in the book about Jobs' famous moment where he explodes about the CD tray and the iMac in 97 or yeah, right before it's about to be released. And he comes in in the late 90s, uh, just before they're about to do the event at Cupertino, pops it open and out comes a tray. And he thought it was going to be a sliding CD slot. And he was just irate and he chewed out uh, the engineers who worked on it and was cussing and threatening to cancel the event, which was scheduled for the next day. And everybody was a bit horrified that they'd done all this work and it was going to be for naught. And he steamed off the stage and somewhere back behind the stage, Johnny, I found him and calmly said to him that, Steve, that's, 
that's next year's iMac. It, you know, it's coming next year. And for whatever reason, Johnny Ive with his, his cool demeanor was able to calm the voluble Steve Jobs. And the two walked off down the hallway with, with uh, Jobs's arm over Johnny saying, I know, I know. And, and from that moment forward, people who worked around them said that they just had that kind of balance for each other that really worked. And Jobs went out of his way over the years not to be critical of Johnny personally, because he knew Johnny was relatively sensitive. It's interesting when you think about Jobs' reputation for being a jerk, it's interesting that he could also recognize what the talent around him needed in order to excel and kind of fine tune his own personal behavior and personality traits in order to bring the best out of his workforce. Yeah. And I wonder if the reverse was also true, because with some of the anecdotes that you recount about the way that Johnny Ive courted the fashion industry when the Apple Watch was being developed, I wonder whether uh, Steve Jobs also helped to curb some of those tendencies that really were a bit of a tangent. It's possible, although I'd argue, and I came into my reporting on the book equally skeptical about the fashion marketing effort around the watch and left persuaded that it was actually probably the right sensibility, if not a bit overkill. And the reason being, if the fashion industry you know, rejected the watch from the outset, it would have been doomed to living the life of a Fitbit. It would not be something that you'd see on the wrists of people at high-end restaurants in New York City, much less on the wrist of a, an athlete who's running around a, a track. So it, it needed to start with fashion and the acceptance of the fashion world so that the rest of the world could accept the device. But perhaps maybe leaning so far into that world would have been wise and prudent. At the same time, like the bigger problem with the watch that we haven't mentioned is that it, its functionality was insufficient in the initial addition to really be much more than focused on around fashion. Yeah, and nobody really knew what it was for either. Right. I mean, the book goes into great detail about, about the various strains within Apple that led to pursuing their watch. I mean, there was an effort at the, around the time to do kind of glucose monitoring. So there were, were some health sensibilities. In addition to that, there were a group of engineers that were working on how to help women know that their phone was ringing when it was in their purse. So they were looking at, well, should we create a brooch or kind of a bracelet that would buzz them so that they would know? All of these things were kind of swirling around and then became tied up in the watch itself, not to mention the external pressure from Wall Street, which was saying, well, you have to make something new in the sense that they needed to replace the iPhone eventually. And by the time the watch came along, it was becoming less common to line up for hours for iPhones the day before. But I do remember getting my first Apple Watch right after it came out and the sense of ceremony that accompanied it. You know, you'd sit down uh, for a fitting and you'd help, you'd be helped to choose the band and the particular material that the watch was made of. And it was an experience that they created with that. Right, right. I mean, they, the book goes, goes into some detail about how they overhauled the store and went through a tremendous amount of training for staff so that they would identify who was walking through the door, what type of watch they might purchase. They would scan their wrist to see what type of watch they already had on. They could assess whether or not somebody was, 
you know, say a wealthy farmer that should actually be buying a stainless steel watch or a teacher that was best suited in an aluminum watch and then kind of price them into what they deem most appropriate. And yet it seems that the argument you're making in the book is that by the time the Apple Watch came along, this is where the wheels really had started to fall off product development. And the watch was forced out the door too soon. As you say, it was slow, it was clunky, and its purpose was not clearly defined. So I guess you would consider that a bit of a botched launch to some degree? Right. I mean, there's a moment at the tail end of, or just on the precipice of, of the watch's launch a couple of months beforehand, where one of the lead engineers goes to Jeff Williams, who was technically responsible for the watch's development, and says to Jeff, uh, hey, Jeff, if you showed up today and forgot your iPhone, what would you do? And Jeff says, uh, go home and get it. So, well, if you show up today and you forgot your watch, what would you do, Jeff? And he said, I guess I'd get it tonight. And the engineer looked at him and he said, see, that's why we shouldn't launch the watch. It's not ready yet. Because they really had not defined its capabilities in a way that would fulfill customers' expectations. There's so much emphasis at the time of that initial event on how accurate the timekeeping would be. And yet, for many people inside Apple, one of the real struggles as they went to promote it was their own recognition that it could only tell time half of the time that people wore it because the battery life needed to be prolonged. So they came up with this temporary solution where you had to tilt the watch to your face and look at it in order to get the time, which meant even as a timepiece, it wasn't fully functional. I read your book with voiceover on my phone, as I said, and something that came up was so extraordinary to me that I stopped and made voiceover read it again to make sure that I heard it right. You tell an extraordinary story in the book about a chip that Apple found from a startup during the, the development of the watch that could detect cancer. And people were talking about implementing that chip, and there was some discussion about false positives, reputational risk. Can you tell me a bit more about that? And I'm curious about what became of that startup and that chip. You know, it was really just part of, it was emblematic of some of the health aspirations of the company at the time and what they hoped they can make the watch become. And in the course of exploring those various avenues, they did come upon the possibility of a startup that said it could identify cancer and they investigated it. And it was pretty clearly, it was pretty abruptly shot down in part because someone on the team said, well, what's it going to be like when Apple is the bearer of bad news and says, hey, you have cancer? And then what's worse than that, what if Apple doesn't tell you? And then is it liable for that failure, or that shortcoming? And they quickly realized that the world of health was far more complex than the world of sending email and texts and uh, opening up apps and playing music on your phone. So they abandoned the effort. I am not sure what happened to, to that particular startup. I, I couldn't begin to tell you, but it was more just a flavor in the process of kind of the heyday and, and thrill of thinking big and broad about what the watch could be. And then the realization that within that pursuit that they couldn't do everything that they wanted to because health is just such a complicated field, one that they had never really tried to tap before. But you see, now that I know that, I know of a couple of people actually who have died of cancer who were Apple Watch owners. And I stopped in my tracks after reading that paragraph in the book and I thought, had they been given an early diagnosis, would they still be here? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing thing to think about. But as you talk to people who worked on the health aspects of the watch and the glucose monitoring ambitions of the company, everybody's body is so different physiologically that it's impossible to kind of streamline a device in a way that it performs consistently for every single individual, much less go through the hoops of getting the FDA approval and navigating the bureaucracy in the U.S. that you would need to release it. So I hear what you're saying. You can imagine why everyone was wide-eyed about the possibility and potential of this capability, but also quickly brought back down to earth by some of the complications and the reality of, of what implementing that would mean. The subtitle of the book which says that Apple has lost its soul, even though by Wall Street definitions, it's one of the most successful companies in the world. It's extremely rare for any company, of course, to produce one truly disruptive product. And Apple's done it several times when Ivan Jobs were working together. Is it realistic to think that had Jobs lived, they would have been able to continue that degree of disruption? Or might we have seen the incrementalism that we now have anyway? You know, people who work closely with Jobs like to laugh and think that if he was still there, the company would have never reached the financial achievements that it has. In part because they think like he would have decided to disrupt the uh, the iPhone with some other device and cut off and choked off all that growth and potential of the device that has been rocket fuel for their business performance. I can't help but laugh and, and think about that because he's just so cavalier and uh, and he did that time and time again, whether that was with the iPod mini being replaced by the iPod Nano or the iPod itself really being replaced by the iPhone. He showed he was willing to, to roll the dice and make risk. I can only assume that he would try to do so. I think the open question is what would be the consequences of that and would it be successful or not? In retrospect, we can look back at the past decade and say there really hasn't been a revolutionary new product. You know, there's been the implementation of AI and artificial intelligence across speakers through the Echo and Alexa and Google Assistant, Google Home and Apple's attempts with HomePod. But that product hasn't been truly disruptive. You know, electric vehicles is developed by Tesla have disrupted the automobile industry, but Apple hasn't participated in that field. Television is being unbundled, but it's not been disrupted by any single device. So I don't know that Apple has missed anything, but it has not inspired the imagination in the same way that it did with the series of devices it developed between 2000 and 2010. And it's interesting because some of Apple's innovations haven't evolved to the degree that I thought they would. Siri is the prime example for me. When it came out in 2011, I thought it was pretty good for its time. Obviously, it's been superseded by both Alexa and Google Assistant now. What I was expecting by this stage is the ability to be able to give quite complex instructions to technologies like Siri and say, I'm looking for a flight to depart my home city between nine and midday next Monday, and I want to come home between six and eight that same day, and I'd like the cheapest flight, and have it go away and do those things, and we are not there. No, we're not there. And when you bring up a complicated request like that, I can only think that Google is, a, is the company most prepared to answer and field a question like that just because they've been collecting so much data over the years in terms of what customers want with searches and, and flight 
queries and everything else that you would assume would help inform its guidance and the guidance of Google Assistant. Apple's at a somewhat of a disadvantage in that regard because it, it's not a search hub. So the data that it gathers is certainly not as rich as what Google's able to amass. And your recap of the crisis and the debate around the aftermath of the San Bernardino shooting was really interesting. It did leave me wondering, has the pendulum swung too far? Clearly, this is part of Apple's brand now. We care about your privacy. We don't sell your data. We keep it on device as much as possible. But are the things that can be done suffering as a consequence? Hmm. I don't know. What things would you propose could be done that might be suffering? Really coming back to the comments that you were just talking about in terms of uh, Google Assistant being more capable, for example, because it can use off-device intelligence, searching for things, collecting data and cross-matching in a way that Apple chooses not to do. Right. There have been a number of stories that have covered how some of the privacy philosophy that that permeates the company have impaired its ability to, for example, make the search and recommendations on Apple TV Plus more sophisticated and more in line or in step with Netflix than, say, what it currently is. I don't know that that's a consequence of San Bernardino so much as that's just a philosophy that's so embedded inside the company that it's really hard to shake the company free of that. Um Yes, it would, uh, kind, they're, of, they're it would kind of require it becoming an Apple to do something different. To me, San Bernardino was the trigger in the sense that that was when Apple really nailed its colors to the mast and made a badge of honor of its privacy campaign, really. Yeah, it went public with its position in a way it had never really done so in the past because of the spotlight and attention that was on it at that time. Um, certainly Jobs had talked about privacy and that had guided the company in the years that followed in terms of its own position and, and philosophy on it. But it wasn't until San Bernardino and the moment where Tim Cook had to say, I'm going to take on the U.S. government, that you really see the company have to fully commit to its position in a way that, that it hadn't done so in the past. I was delighted to read the derisive tone in which you described the removal of the headphone jack. As a hearing-impaired person who really needed that jack at the time, it was a major frustration and an inconvenience. Who drove that decision? Was that a Johnny Ive decision to ditch the headphone jack? And why do you think they were so committed to it, even though there was quite a lot of opposition to it? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't I didn't delve into who drove the decision. Obviously, the elimination of the headphone jack itself was directly correlated to the release of AirPods and the promise of those. And those AirPods go back to, and the idea for them go back to the watch and the desire at the time to, to make the watch something that could replace the iPhone and free people from having to carry their phones around with them. The only way that, that the designers thought they could do that was if you had some kind of Bluetooth headset that allowed you to listen to music on the go or make phone calls from your wrist. Mm. So a purely self-serving commercial decision to take something as ubiquitous as the headphone jack away to generate demand for a product that they knew was coming in the roadmap. I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you whether or not it was it was totally self-serving or not, or if it was it just was not part of my reporting. The headphone jack removal leaked really early, and it leaked from multiple sources. And there are times when I think Apple does this, where it allows leaks to take place to test the waters, to test the public reaction. Do you think that that was the case with the headphone jack? 
I don't know. I mean, I again, um, you, I think you're more attuned to the to the headphone jack than, than I am. <laughs> I think my my focus on it was more as it was announced and the reaction to it, but mostly on the AirPods and the and the story of the AirPods and what that revealed about some of the challenges with product development inside Apple. Yeah, I mean, there was this real glut of horrible decisions around this time. One thing I don't think was mentioned in the book was the brand damaging butterfly keyboard on the Mac. Mm. And that was a disaster. It had all sorts of consequences in terms of frequent repairs and damage. And then there was the touch bar as well. It seems to be a bit of a, bit of a low point for the Mac because many professionals really felt betrayed by the direction of travel of the Mac. They've redeemed themselves, of course, with the M1, which is phenomenal hardware. But the Mac really went into a trough for a while there. Yeah, no, they certainly took it on the, on the churn publicly. And there were a lot of tech reviewers and critics who continue to bang the drum about the quality of that product, namely uh, Joanna Stern at the Wall Street Journal, who did a number of pieces year after year just about you know, the frustrations of Mac customers who whose keyboards weren't working. That was a product and a device that became a real sore point for the company during that period. One perception I get from tech journalists, at least some tech journalists, is they really are reluctant to go too hard on Apple because Apple can be quite vindictive and the repercussions can be quite significant and you can get blacklisted and all those things. Is that real? Um, you know, Apple is pretty closed off, right? I mean, they operate under this kind of philosophy of corporate omerta and they don't offer a lot, right? Um, yeah. it's, so it's hard for them to take away a lot. Um, <laughs> they, they, you know, they're just... And so, so I, I, I understand the reputation that you speak to, but by the same token, it's hard for them to be vindictive when, when what they offer up is relatively limited to begin with. Another one that I think you left alone, which was incredibly magnanimous of you, really, was the air power. And I think I'm right in saying mm -hmm. that this is the only product that Apple has given keynote time to that turned into vaporware. But I guess that speaks to your whole thesis about product development having gone quite off the rails there. Right, right. I, I mean, I don't know that it... I don't know if it's the only product that they um, they gave airtime to at a keynote that didn't get released, but certainly in some previous reporting, I mean, the, the problem with the product was the engineering. The designers had a vision for what they wanted it to be. But as they were making that product, some previous Wall Street Journal reporting I did, they found that it just kept heating anything that they placed on the device like a hot plate. So if you accidentally let, let your keys touch it and then picked up your keys, they would be warm to the touch in a way that, you know, you could get scorched, not not like burn, but I would say this somewhat tongue in cheek. It was a bit fiery. Um, <laughs> and so they had to they had to they had to abandon the effort uh, as a consequence of the engineering challenges. And it was a real source of internal embarrassment for the team that was working on it. Yeah, they should have made it compatible with Apple Books and called it Apple Fire. <laughs> I, I, Amazon probably has a, has a you know a trademark on the trademark, fire, right? Trademark. <laughs> we read in the tech press that you know the Siri team is frustrated that they're feeling a bit constrained because of the privacy things that we talked about. You gave a lot of background on the car, and a lot of people in this audience are very interested in this car because you can appreciate if you're a blind person, and we do get to the point where you've got a car that is truly autonomous, that regulators agree is safe enough to drive itself, that is 
a colossal game changer for blind people. But it sounds like it's a bit stuck. Uh, you know, it's not just stuck at Apple, right? It's stuck across the board. I think there's been a realization, obviously, that the ambitions for uh, autonomy and full autonomy are not going to be attained anytime in the near future. And then the alarming thing about that is that if you think back in 2015, they were thinking the opposite. They thought that we'd be riding around in autonomous vehicles by 2021. I mean, this was consensus broadly across the valley, not just Apple. Google thought that and they've really pushed Waymo really, really hard. But Waymo being the leader among anybody who's pursued this has shown the the challenges of it. They're really only operating in an autonomous fashion for customers in Chandler, Arizona, which is a which is a suburb of Phoenix and this, you know, large wide lanes and relatively predictable traffic patterns and that just speaks to the challenge of what they're trying to do. Most people in that field feel like they're not going to get full autonomy delivered until there's artificial general intelligence when essentially a machine can function with the same sophistication as a human brain. And nobody knows when that breakthrough is going to happen. And I realize that accessibility is not your beat as such, but just a couple of days ago, as we record this, Apple made some announcements about some of the ways that they're using LiDAR in the pro phones in the next version of iOS, which will be iOS 16, to do things like door detection for blind people. So you'll have a combination of camera and LiDAR technologies that will read signs on doors, detect whether they're open or closed, and how you open them. It occurs to me that because the blind community is so engaged with Apple and willing to give feedback, positive and otherwise, we are a bit of a testbed for these augmented reality glasses, a lot of that technology will find its way in there. What's your perception of that project and how close it is to delivery? Bloomberg had an interesting report today on that. Mark Gurman reported that the board had recently seen the, uh, not the glasses, but the, the VR headset that Apple's been. And di- didn't I read that they were using and- Windows to do the demo? I don't think that was German's report. I think you may be thinking of the information's report, which right. was longer and more about the development of the headset itself. You know, that headset, of course, is a precursor to glasses. So I'm not sure what that means about when we could see glasses. Those continue to be a huge technical leap for engineers because of the battery power that you would need and the sophistication in the lenses and the weight and all the other challenges that they're going to have to resolve in order to bring those to market. So I guess the inevitable question is, is the golden age of Apple over? I mean, if you're an investor or somebody <laughs> on Wall Street, you're, you, you, you think you're swimming in the golden age, right? right? So it all depends on who you pose the question to. Apple is a bit of an optical illusion, and the book speaks to that. I mean, you could talk to some people and they could look at the book. I mean, it's kind of like that... There's an ink print illustration that some people look at and they see a a duck and some people look at it and see a rabbit. And if you see a a rabbit, you can't see a duck. And if you see a duck, you can't see a rabbit. And so some people look at at the book and say, well, Tim Cook nailed it. And, you know, they're a multi-trillion dollar company and they've done a great job. And he's made the most out of the iPhone business. He's built up this incredible business in China. And he's turned Apple into the adoration of Wall Street. And then other people look at it and say, well... But he's done all of that on the back of legacy products that were really developed by Jobs and Ive, and Ive has left. And will they ever make another product that can have the same degree of success and achievement as either the iPhone or the iPad or the Mac or even the watch? Because Johnny was the one who drove the watch. 
at this juncture, we don't know. We don't know who Tim Cook will lean on within that team to develop and drive the next product uh, and the next product iteration that could bring Apple forward. I mean, it's been what, almost eight years since they introduced the watch. It went on sale in 2015, in spring of 2015. So seven years since it went on sale. And you know, some time has passed. It's it will be interesting if they launch this this headset, how it's received, if it's something that people embrace, or if it's much like the Oculus headset, which is resigned to being something for people who are in kind of the gaming community or early adopters of technology and hasn't quite crossed over to really win mainstream acceptance. We speculated earlier about whether Tim Cook was quite pleased to see Scott Forstall leave the building and there might have been some politics there. The reverse, I think, was true with Johnny Ive, that perhaps because of the potential reaction from investors, perhaps because of the knowledge that he had, maybe Tim Cook allowed Johnny Ive to hang on far too long. His heart wasn't in it for a long time. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, in, in 2015, the book recounts how Johnny came to Tim Cook quite fatigued after the development of the watch uh, and said that... He wanted to take a break or leave or find some other arrangement if he was going to stay. And Tim Cook agreed to shift him into a part-time role so that he would work primarily on future product and the completion of Apple Park. And they also agreed that he'd take on a new title, chief design officer, and be freed from having a lot of the managerial responsibilities that he'd had over the the software design team and the industrial design team. And the arrangement seemed like on its surface, uh, a wise one and one that certainly Tim Cook favored at the time, because as he told others, he didn't want to be remembered as the CEO who lost Johnny Ive because Jobs had you know, built Johnny Ive into a bit of a legacy within the world of Apple by saying that he was the second most powerful figure at Apple after Jobs himself. Of course, Apple has always prided itself on controlling the entire user experience. And this is one of their big sales pitches. They do both the hardware and the software, and they see that as a strength. So I guess it does make sense at an intellectual level, it's quite consistent with Apple's philosophy, that they are increasingly trying to provide you with the services that you use on the devices that they make. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense on an intellectual level. I think the bigger case that has been made internally for doing that is that it makes sense for business reasons. I mean, one of the things that they are tapping into with the development of Apple Music and the launch of TV Plus and Apple Fitness and some of these other services that they've launched is uh, recurring revenue that comes in month after month after month. And that can be a, a, a real benefit for a company that needs to diversify beyond the iPhone, especially at a time when the iPhones, the cost of components, since we're in an inflationary time period, are going to be going up in the iPhone. So the great thing about services is you can control those costs and the monthly payments keep coming in. And so your profit margins are really, really fat on services. And that's been a big reason that, that Apple leaned into that business. Are there some obvious places for Apple still to go in terms of services that they haven't explored yet? One of the things they're elbowing their way into, and they're in the earliest phases of doing it, and, and it's a service, but it's not one that you would think of initially when you think of Apple, is, um, is this idea of on-device management and security. 
that many companies rely on to make sure that their workforce doesn't download malware. But Apple's elbowing into that world, and that's a huge potential business for them to enter. Um, in doing so, they risk upsetting regulators, as they've done in the past with things like air tags and tile, right? Because you're entering a field where there's there's somebody else already in it, and they look at the advantages that Apple has in developing a product and having access to the direct access to the customer base. But it is, if Apple is able to tap into it, a really large market that could be really beneficial to them. And you don't think of that as like a service, right? It's not TV plus, it's not sexy, but it's substantial financially. And of course, it also looks like Apple is going to be allowing people to subscribe to iPhone itself as a service. Right. And and that's the power of all of this is you can bundle it all together. You can create the equivalent of an Amazon Prime, um, which Apple has like a, you know, a, a smaller version of that at this point. But if you, you roll in your iPhone, you roll in your iPad, maybe instead of buying kind of a base level iPad, you say, well, if I can stretch these payments over the span of a few years, I'm going to buy an iPad Pro. So Apple is able to sell a higher end version of the device and, and collect more money from it. That's such like premium sales, as they call it in the world of, of finance and, and Wall Street, have been key to Apple's business strength over the past year or so, because a lot more people who aren't traveling and aren't spending money on going out to dinner decided to buy the iPhone Pro and spend more than they would in previous years. But of course, the big elephant in the room with the services strategy is regulation. And even if the dysfunctional United States Congress doesn't get it together, it looks like the EU is getting it together really quickly. Do you think that Apple as a company in the way that it is structured today will be the same in five years time? If the Digital Markets Act goes through as planned and they're able to get out of court in time, you know, I mean, who knows how long these companies will try to keep that law locked up in court, then no. I mean, it's impossible for, for Apple or Google or Amazon, many, any of these companies to emerge from the other side of that act looking as they do today. And probably the biggest potential repercussion for Apple in that law would be the discontinuation in Europe, at the very least, if not in other markets, of its lucrative deal to make Google the default search provider and search engine on iPhones, which I think analysts say, well, you know, if they lose that, it would cost Apple something on the order of two to three percent of gross total gross profit on an annual basis, which is just underscores how valuable that deal is for them. Who do you think will replace Tim Cook when the time comes? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, you know, he has filled the employee or the senior employee ranks with a lot of his top lieutenants. I mean, Jeff Williams has, has worked at his side since their days at IBM. I think he, he's the logical candidate to succeed Tim Cook, if, especially if Tim Cook were to move into a role like chairman and replace the current chairman of the board. The other, the other option uh, from operations that's on the executive team is Deirdre O'Brien. She's moved into a role there as well. Luca Maestri is, is really an influential figure as the CFO, but he'd probably, I would imagine, I'm just speculating here. I, I don't know that that'd be a role that he'd necessarily slide into. That'd be up to the board. But, um, but I think Jeff and Deirdre know the business well and were 
so close to Tim Cook over the years that they, they would be the most logical successors at this point. So it is likely, you think, to be an internal appointment, somebody that they may be grooming for succession rather than some external candidate they might bring in. Apple doesn't do well when it brings in external candidates. Well, I, mean, I think, I think, I think, you know, I mean, they have a saying there that, you know, the body re- rejects the organ quite quickly uh, at <laughs> Apple. And, and you can point to a lot more people who've been rejected than those that have been accepted. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the famous rejection was John Browett, who was there for about a year to work on the Apple retail efforts. And he came in and cut a bunch of costs in Apple retail because that's what Tim Cook wanted. And then many of the stores were upset. And so he was dismissed relatively soon thereafter or decided to leave. It's a bit unclear. And then John Gian Andrea, who came over from Google, is the exception to that rule. He has joined the company and had some staying power, but that doesn't happen often, especially not in the senior ranks like like uh, John Gian, Gian Andrea inhabits. We are seeing what I can describe, I think, as a breakdown in Apple's discipline. We've got constant leaks about the degree of upset that there is regarding the strict return to the office policy that Apple is trying to implement. We had the Apple II movement. It's not possible, it seems, for Apple to hold together that cloak of secrecy like they used to. Yeah, I mean, the the company's employee ranks have just exploded uh, over the past decade. And when you have that many more people, it's hard to maintain the culture that Apple had built over the years. And that becomes even harder when you add on the complications from the pandemic and the fact that people were working remotely. It's really hard to kind of immerse them in the culture of Apple when they're working from home. And as a result, I think we're seeing a lot more independence (laughs) from their workforce than you had seen before. Uh, you know, I think one of the the hallmarks of working at Apple was solidarity and belief in what Apple was doing and its mission in the world. And there's some cracks in that right now. What I really like about your book is that it mirrors my own feelings about Apple as a blind person, having benefited from many of the things that Apple has delivered. I own a lot of Apple products, written quite a few books on Apple, and have praised a lot of what they do. But I've also been very critical. I've felt that it's justified of quality control issues and various other things. Your book is quite nuanced, and I really like that because it is hard to find objective writing about Apple. Are there things overall that you think Apple needs to correct? Is there a particular path they're on where you think somebody needs to come in and make a course correction here? Uh it's not for me to, you know, to to offer my opinion on on a course correction for them. I mean, they they deal with a ton of critics all the time, <laughs> and you can you can find those all over the place from the FCC, which has been challenging them on their position in China around Voice of America of the Voice America app. They've faced criticism from privacy advocates over some of their plans for cooperation with governments around the world on CSAM. And then, you know, as we discussed from customers and tech reviewers like Joanna Stern on some of the shortcomings of the design and engineering in the MacBook and that butterfly keyboard system that they finally got rid of. So 
there are more of those out there than not. And I, you know, the book does hit on some of those challenges and highlights where Apple will face tests in the years ahead. To your point, services and the European regulator, regulatory front and U.S. regulatory front is, is going to be a challenge. And, and China, in a world where geopolitical tensions are ever heightened, particularly with the war in Ukraine, that promises to pose a big challenge for Tim Cook in the years, years ahead. Yeah, it is hard to retain those lofty principles that Apple is so willing to trumpet when you're jeopardizing a big market like China, right? Right, right. It's about a fifth of their sales. And then more important than that, it it accounts for almost all of its exports. So they they really are totally dependent on China and, and Chinese workers to make their business go. Hmm. Chip, I've really enjoyed talking with you. I think the book is a brilliant read. I couldn't put it down. And uh, I appreciate you giving me some time to have a chat about it today. Yeah, delighted to connect and appreciate you reaching out. And that familiar yet unfamiliar in this context, music ushers in another edition of the Bonnie Bulletin with our incredible co-host, Bonnie Mosin. Uh, Hello. Hi. (laughs) Welcome. I was trying to decide what language to talk in today. (laughs) (laughs) And people might wonder why are we starting with that. And if people are completely off the grid, what that is, is Abba's I Still Have Faith in You. It has had an amazing history, this song. I remember it so clearly. I think I woke the world up. It was on a Friday. Pretty sure it was Friday, the 27th of April, 2018. And I was minding my business. And I'm a huge ABBA fan. I've read lots of ABBA books. I've got all the albums. And it was pretty clear that perhaps relations between the four members of the band were thawing a little bit. And what was amazing was back in 2016, they got up on stage and they did the way old friends do. And some enterprising person captured this at a private party. And so the only recording of it that exists is from a smartphone. And it was just amazing. Um, that That's a lovely song, The, the Way Old Friends Do. It's almost Eartha Kitt-like. It uh, is. But anyway, so on the 27th of April, 2018, the word came through that ABBA were doing this digital project. And originally, it was going to be an NBC and BBC documentary. And they were going to do a two-hour film special using this avatar concept. And as part of that, they had recorded two songs, one of which they said was called I Still Have Faith in You. And eventually we found out that the other was called Don't Shut Me Down. And then the long wait began. I mean, I was talking on the Mosin Explosion on Mushroom FM regularly about, okay, so when are we getting these ABBA songs? And originally they said it would be by Christmas of 2018 that we'd get the new songs. And that came and went. And Bjorn and Benny kept saying, be patient, be patient. And 2019 came and went, and of course, then the pandemic came along, and everybody was thinking, well, what does the delay mean? Does it mean that there's more coming, or have they got cold feet, or what's the deal? And then, of course, finally, last year, we got the word that this project had changed considerably, because originally they said they were going to tour the world with this Avatar project, so it would be coming to a venue near us. And then they changed the whole thing and they've built this purpose-built arena. The project was much more ambitious in every respect in the sense that there was going to be this 90-minute concert and also there would be a new ABBA album, which was just amazing. When the ABBA Voyage project was announced late last year, I thought, well, would I go? You know, what would it be like for a blind person? So in London, 
they've got this arena, the ABBA arena, and they have redone the building several times at rooftop level because they had to accommodate the lighting rig, apparently. So they've re-roofed it about seven times now to accommodate the lighting rig. So it's been a long, long project in the gestation. The ABBA Voyage project opened on Friday, UK time. So I kept thinking, what would it be like for a blind person to go to this? They've got a live band on the stage, but obviously the four ABBA members are virtual. So you will get new sound. And in the end, the pull was just too irresistible. I thought, if I don't do this, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. So it was a very long intro. And now over to Bonnie to talk about what we're up to. We're going to be having a literally whirlwind tour because we're going to be going around the entire world, basically. We're going to be going to London because originally he was thinking about just flying over there for the show. And he wanted to know that I want to go. I said, well, I don't really want to just fly over for a show if I can't spend time in London. And so he thought about it and went back and consulted with the travel gods or travel goddess, I guess, in this case, and figured out a way that we could spend time a few days in in London looking at the prices. And, uh, of course, if you make a convoluted trip, it's a lot cheaper than if you fly straight and and decide to take Nicola because originally he was just going to go with Nicola because she's the four kids. She's the the biggest ABBA fan and it would be good to have her along as a guide. So it was just originally going to be Jonathan and Nicola if they were going to make this kind of dash to London and back again trip. So he calls me yesterday at work and says, you know, I have this. We can go on Lufthansa and there's a few days. We can stay a few days and go to Paris if you want to. And we can also go over to Stockholm to see the ABBA Museum. And I said, yeah, I'll do that. The, 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 of course, there's always the, what is it, the uh, the downside of anything. <laughs> the downside is being we're going to be spending a lot of time on a Boeing or whatever they're flying. Yeah. Just a lot of but, flying. But if we're, if we're going to go that far, we may as well do the whole ABBA experience and go yeah. to the ABBA Museum. Yeah. And so yeah. It, what was funny was when I called Nicola, because I've been keeping this under wraps because the one thing you don't want to do is disappoint yeah. one of your kids about something like this. Mm-hmm. If I'd even speculated with her and then decided that we couldn't do it for whatever reason. And I still wrestle with it. I think is this just a real extravagance, but mm-hmm. uh, I is a big part of my life always has been a big part of my life since when I was a kid. Uh, and I was fortunate. I mean, I'm a huge Beatles fan, but the Beatles were always kind of post era for me, but with Abra, I grew up with it, you know? And uh, so anyway, uh, I just decided I'm, I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to do this. So I called Nicola yesterday when it was clear we are committed. And I said to her, do you want to come to the ABBA concert with me? And she was quite chill, you know. I mean, she's still a teenager just. And she said, yeah, when is it? And I said, oh, we're thinking of going in September. And she said, yeah, okay. And then I paused and I said to her, it's in London. And she said, London? I said, well, where, did, <laughs> where yeah. did you think we were going? She said, I thought you were talking about some sort of cover band that was coming here. I said, no, we're going to the real deal. We're going to go to the Stockholm. And she couldn't believe it. <laughs> so uh, so we're all, I'm so excited about this. Uh, I really am. And just being online, I uh, used the assistance of Ira in the end to book the tickets and make sure we got one with a really good view so that Nicola can enjoy that from her point of view. We've got amazing seats because we're booking so far in advance. And um, just doing it and knowing that we have these tickets now, man, it's amazing. It really is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So we fly to Los Angeles. 
Yeah, not Munich. looking forward to that bit. <laughs> no, and then Munich. <laughs> then London. Yep. <laughs> where we get to recover for a few days. And then the Eurostar over to Paris. Well, there's something about Americans in London. I mean, given how much you guys struggle to get rid of them, I find it amazing that so many Americans are fascinated. So I did want well, to... Well, most Americans, the majority of Americans are English stock. Well, sure. I wanted to build in plenty of time to do the things that many American tourists like to do. And Nicola will want to do them as yeah, well. Yeah, Nicola you know. wants to go to the um, London, London Eye. Eye, which is an observation wheel, it calls itself, which sounds quite interesting. It's the biggest tourist attraction in the UK, which kind of surprised me. I figured Buckingham Palace would be, but no, it's this new... I don't quite understand how it works because it, it, it's not... What I envision a Ferris wheel, because apparently you can walk on and off of it as it moves, except if you're elderly or disabled and they will stop it for you. So, That's kind of them. I mean, I'm sure it's completely different, but reminds me of those sky gondolas at Queenstown because they're, they're all air conditioned, like an air conditioned pod that holds up to 30 people and it moves and it takes about 30 minutes to make its rotation. And, you know, you look out over all of London, so... And then the Eurostar trip, both Nicola and Bonnie are really keen to do the Eurostar to Paris, so we'll mm -hmm. do that. And we may even pay a visit to Louis Braille's birthplace. Yeah, depending on where that is. And um, it, yes, if we can make it, if we can fit it in. It's going to be, as Bonnie says, I don't know if she gets whirlwind, whirlwind itinerary from, but yeah, it is going to be a bit of a, a full trip. And I think we're going to just have to make a list of all the things we need to get done mm -hmm. and get it done. Otherwise, we fritter the day away speculating about all the things that we could do. I did find out that there is a Sherlock Holmes. I don't know if it's still there because a lot of things change, but apparently there's a Sherlock Holmes hotel. Me on Baker Street. Yes. Incredible. And also a Sherlock Holmes Museum, if you would be interested in that. Yeah, well, that would be really cool, actually. I like Sherlock Holmes. I mean, there's so much that we could do. Definitely want to take some walks in the gardens. And, yeah. Yeah, and then we uh, have to do some shopping because everyone's like, oh, you're going to do some shopping. I'm like, absolutely. And if you've been to Stockholm, I know it's a beautiful city, very clean and pretty. But if there's anything specific we should see in Stockholm, we'll be going to the ABBA Museum, but we'll also be having some time to do some other exploring. It looks like there's some canal trips you can take, like a boat trip down the Royal Canal, which looks nice, and a lot of the old part of Stockholm that you can walk around in the waterfront, so it sounds like it's a very pretty area, a lot of greenery. But and the, the ABBA Museum does sound really cool. You can go in there and get an audio guide. You can get on stage, apparently, with members of the group virtually and do some mixing, apparently, and singing <laughs> and things. So I'm sure Nicola in particular will really enjoy that. Yeah. So. And for those wondering, Eclipse is not going on this trip. It's just no. uh, for a multitude of reasons. All the flying. Getting into Europe is pretty easy, at least France and probably Germany and Sweden. But uh Britain is a lot like New Zealand, so all the paperwork and stuff. So she is going to be babysat by Heidi for two weeks. Well, we'll keep people posted, and mm. it's very possible that next week's Bonnie Bulletin will be even more consequential. Yeah. All right. Okay. Goodbye. I love to hear from you, so if you have any comments you want to contribute to the show, drop me an email written down or with an audio attachment to Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. If you'd rather call in, use the listener line number in the United States, 864-606-6736. Who's in it?